So as I was writing this sermon, I went on Google and I typed in top things that people want most in life. And the answer that was pretty much number one on every list was the answer that I was expecting, and it's that people want to be happy. People want to be happy. People want to enjoy and experience this life with joy in their hearts. And I know that we can relate to this. I mean, I've, I've, I've yet to meet a single person who told me that they don't want to have joy in their life. We all want joy in our lives. But how do we get that? How do we live as people who are, who are joyful? Well, again, I, I typed in on Google and said, okay, how, how do I find joy in my life? And these were some of the common answers. Things like, you need to let go of the past. You need to practice gratitude. You need to surround yourself with positive people. You need to exercise 10 minutes a day, spend more time outside, pursue your interests and your hobbies and the things that you love. Now, some of these things are, are helpful. I mean, if you exercise, there's probably a biological component to, to feeling better as a person, but are they, are they how we find true and lasting joy in our lives? You know, is this how we experience joy to the full? Now, sometimes our, our walk with God, it doesn't feel very joyful. Maybe as I'm talking about this, you know, this joy, you're like, yes, that's me. I want this joy. And your, your walk with God feels dull and feels lifeless and sluggish. And it's just based on this routine of going through things where you're no longer actually delighting in the Lord. You know, we pick up our, our Bibles, His Word, and we, we read it every morning. But the words don't really do anything for us. They don't bring us any joy. And we sit and we, we pray to Him, but our, our prayers are distracted and they, they lack passion and, and conviction. You know, when we stand and we sing, and maybe you're just simply mouthing the words of praise to God rather than being overwhelmed with gratitude and joy for the Lord. And maybe that's you. I know that that can be me at times, and I also know that I can't stand when I am in situations like that in my walk with the Lord. I want to experience what the Bible calls the joy of the Lord. Like David, when he cries out, restore to me the joy of my salvation, of your salvation. And not just joy when when things are going well, but joy even when things aren't going well. You know, anyone can can be happy when everything is going their way. But I want to be able to say, as, as Paul said, you know, he is sorrowful, yet also rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet also rejoicing. Now, do you want that? Do you want true and lasting joy that the Lord offers you? Well, this morning we're going to look at a few ways that we can begin to experience the joy of the Lord by looking at the Song of Mary. So if you're not already there, turn your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 1. Sounds like I'm the only one that isn't there yet. And this week we are going to be, uh, the, Mary's song, we're going to divide it up into two sermons. Uh, so the first sermon this week, we're going to be looking at 
the individual reasons that we have to rejoice as Christians. You know, God's individual blessings that he's poured out upon us. And then next week, we're going to be looking at the universal or the communal reasons that we have to be rejoicing in the workings of God. And so, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56 is going to be our passage this morning. It says this, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that the Lord believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. In, their thoughts, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, with her, with her about three months and returned to her home. Before we jump into Mary's song, we're given some background leading up to uh, this, this song that she cries out and sings to the Lord uh, in the first few verses. So we see that Mary hastily, it says, she goes with haste and takes off to visit her aunt. If you remember last week, this is because she's received some pretty big news. I mean, she is a a virgin, yet she will conceive a child. And it's not any normal child. This is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. And you can imagine her. There's probably this sense of fear and nerves mixed with joy and excitement going on in her mind. We all had experiences like that. I mean, she's probably only like a 13 or 14-year-old girl, and now she's just been hit with this, this big news. But if you remember, Gabriel has told her something. She, she says, how, how will this be? And he tells her, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And then he also says, for behold, your, your aunt Elizabeth has conceived a child in her old age. So he's saying, I've given you a sign uh, that this is actually going to happen. And so Mary understands this. She knows that maybe, okay, the one person that might understand her, the, might, the one person that might believe her, is going to be her Aunt Elizabeth because she too has conceived a miraculous child in her old age. 
And so she makes this three or four day journey to uh, the, the country of the, the outskirts of Judah, which is about an 80 to 100 mile journey. And when she arrives, uh, we see that she kind of arrives there unexpected at her aunt's house. And the spirit, it says that the spirit fills both her and the child within her womb. John, look at verse 41. It says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we see here, John essentially begins his ministry. John's ministry was to point to Christ. We said even in the womb, he already begins to do that. As Mary comes carrying the Son of God in her stomach, John the Baptist leaps for joy at the coming of Christ, preparing Elizabeth to meet the mother of her Lord. And look at Elizabeth's response in verse 42 and 43. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And so we see here that even without Mary telling Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit informs Elizabeth that Mary is carrying the Lord Jesus in her womb. If you remember Mary, she, she takes off in haste after getting this message from Gabriel. So she's probably only about three or four days pregnant. And so she's not, she's not showing uh, that she has a child within her. And yet Elizabeth cries out under the inspiration of the Spirit, Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she calls her the mother of my Lord. And so, th- so you can imagine this in your minds. This is a, a really joyful moment for these two women. They're both uh, in these, these humble estates. Mary is just a young, uh, betrothed virgin from Galilee. Elizabeth has been barren her whole life and is now in old age. And God has graciously blessed both of them. And they are, they are so full of joy to now be together. And this is, this is the background. This is what's going to lead us now into the song of Mary. But quickly, before we do that, I want to go down one quick rabbit trail. So we'll get back on this idea of, of joy in the Lord, but I want to quickly branch off to the side uh, for a second. I want to look at the idea of the personhood of the child in the womb. The personhood of the child in the womb. So unfortunately today, even many progressive Christians do not see the, the child in the womb as a person worth protecting, as a person who has value. But we see here, and, and I'm telling you this to help, to help equip you uh, as Christians when you get in these conversations, which you probably do often, uh, about, the, uh, about abortion, about uh, how we value life even before the child is born. Um, and so we see here in this passage that there's two instances where babies in their mother's wombs are clearly persons. First, we have John the Baptist, who here he's, he's a six-month-old fetus, to use the technical term. And we see that even pre-birth, he's able to be filled with joy, filled with, I would say, the Holy Spirit, which we're told earlier. And now the question is, can someone who is not a person, can someone who is, is not a, a, a thing of value be filled with the Holy Spirit in this way? And the answer is no. I mean, only a a person, only someone who has uh, these values of 
personhood can be filled with the Spirit. And so we see John is clearly a person at six months of age. Now someone might say to you, okay, yeah, of course, six months, like the child is pretty much fully formed. If, if, if they had given birth, if Elizabeth had been given, given birth to John, he would have survived. He's, he's not fully reliant upon his mother. Yeah, I, I agree with you, that's a, a child. But what about if there is no heartbeat? And what about if there is no feeling of pain necessarily? What about, you know, if this isn't a sentient being who can experience emotion and things like that? Well, in response to that, God gives us the case of Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is only about a three- or four-year-old embryo at this point. And yet still, Elizabeth calls him, my Lord, my Lord. Now, titles like my Lord, can only be given to persons. And so to to put it bluntly, if Mary had gotten an abortion at this point, she would have been aborting the actual Lord, not some future possible Lord. Right now it's just a, a clump of cells. She would be aborting a person, the person Jesus Christ. And so the application is very clear. Abortion at any time in pregnancy... Anything that that kills the embryo is the murdering. The murdering of a person who bears the image of God. And so any Christian supporting abortion is supporting the murder of an innocent human being. Now you may have come to Christ later in life where prior to being redeemed and saved by Him, you made the decision to have an abortion. And you don't need me to tell you that that was a sin. I assume that you already know that and that maybe you even struggle with that every day. But what I do want to tell you is that you, if you have placed your faith in Christ, that even that sin has been forgiven by God. It was, it was nailed to the cross with all of your other Sins, and you don't have to live with the guilt of that the rest of your life. And when Christ went to the cross and he went and he, he died knowing that you were going to commit that sin, and it still didn't stop him from going to the cross for you. And so I just want to give a message of hope to anyone who may have come from that that there, that there is hope in the gospel and that all of our sins have been taken and forgiven by Christ. We have been made new. All right, now, off of our rabbit trail of abortion, back onto our main uh, path this morning, let's look at the Song of Mary. We see in verse 46 to 55, Mary breaks out with this song of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And this is something we see all throughout Scripture. And you have Moses and Miriam and Deborah and, and Asaph and Hannah, who we read this morning, all breaking out in these songs uh, where they sing to the Lord full of joy. I think it's a, it's a reminder to us, when we, are, when we are worshiping God, we don't just stand there. You know, we don't just stand up while other people sing. We sing, and we rejoice and sing praises to the Lord. And for Mary's song, we're going to look at, at two reasons why we can sing, rejoice, be glad in the Lord. And then next week, we're going to look at the two more reasons from the second half of the song. 
And so Mary starts off by saying in verse 46 and 47, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God. See, Mary is, is filled with joy. And it's not just some external thing or feeling. But she says that it's her very soul, her very spirit, her inner being that is filled with joy leading her to magnify and praise the Lord. The Bible calls us as God's people. Jesus, as he's talking to the Samaritan woman, says that we are to worship God. A time is coming when we will worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, have you ever thought about what that means? You know, what does it mean to worship God in spirit? Well, it means that we don't just, you know, mumble the words when we sing, distracted from what we are saying. Sometimes I'll catch myself doing that. I'm saying the words because I know the song, but my, my mind is wandering somewhere else. It means that we don't just sit in the, our pew or our chair listening to the words of the Bible and listening to the sermon as they're read to us, but not engaging with it with our very hearts. You know, it means that when we are praying to the Lord, we're thinking about the prayers that are being said in our our hearts and our being is, is lifting up those prayers as well with those who are praying. In Psalm 108 verse 1 says, I will sing and make melody with all my being. With all of my being. And so we worship God as Christians with all of who we are, as Mary does, her, does here. And perhaps you need to ask yourself, you know, is this how you worship God? When you come here on Sunday morning to to gather, to sing songs, to pray, to hear the Word of God, what is your attitude when you come? Is it, okay, I have to be here because I'm commanded to be here? Or is it because I want to worship and magnify God with all of my spirit, in spirit and in truth? Now, getting into the song, we see that the first reason that we can do this, that we can worship God in spirit and truth and rejoice in this way is because God is our Savior, Bit of a long introduction, but that's the first point of the sermon. God is our Savior. In verse 47, Mary says, And my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Now we can throw this term Savior around quite a bit. Let's say a, a woman walking in front of you is walking with her stroller, and you see a stuffed animal fall off the side, so you go grab it, catch up to her, give it to her, and she says, Oh, thank you so much, you're a Savior. You're a savior. My kid won't sleep without this. And we can kind of use this term lightly. But what does it mean that Christ is our savior? Our savior. Well, in its simplest meaning, a savior is is someone who saves someone else. A person is in some sort of distress or danger, and they're saved from that by a savior. And so if Mary here is referring to God as Savior, it should raise the question in our minds, what is God saving us from? What is God saving us from? And now, uh, my kids know this answer. We all know this answer. I was out in Smith Falls talking to people, and I said, God has come to save us. Do you know what he's come to save us from? And the answer is always our sins. You know, we know that. God came to save us from our sins. But there's a lot packed into that. When we say God saves us from our sins. And so I want to try to unpack that a little bit for us this morning. And so first, 
When we say God saves us from our sins, we mean God saves us from our slavery to sin. Our slavery to sin. See, the natural state that we are born into is slavery. You know, we are not born free. We are not born free. We are born as slaves. Romans 6 says that we are slaves to sin, and what we do continually is we offer ourselves up as slaves to our master. You know, picture a, a slave. A slave is not free to do whatever he likes, you know, but he must do what his master tells him. If a slave wants to go into town, he needs the, his master's permission. If a slave wants to get married, he needs his master's permission. He's not free to do as he pleases, but must obey the will of the master. And the problem here is that Jesus says to the unbelieving Pharisees in, in John 8, verse 34, that everyone who sins is a slave of sin. So that leaves a problem, because all humanity, therefore, because we have all sinned, are all slaves to sin. This is our relationship with sin apart from Christ. We often can think of sin as something that we commit. You know, I committed a sin against someone, but, but sin is much more than that. It's definitely the things we commit, but it's much more than that. Sin itself is, is ruling over us. We have a sinful nature at our very core, and it calls the shots for us, and we must obey. You know, why do people lie? Why do people covet? Why do people get angry? Why do people gossip? Why do people do all of these things? I saw a video clip this week of a, a Christian influencer saying that, that all lust is the result of a demonic influence over us, but it's not. You know, humanity does all the things that we do because we are slaves to sin by nature and we do what our master commands us. And so that's the, the first problem of being in our sin. We are slaves to sin. The second problem, not only are we slaves, but we are dead. We are dead in sin. We are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now Paul here, he's, he's, he's not writing to people who have passed away. He's writing to people who are living, talking, walking around, living their lives, and yet he calls them dead. And this is because they are spiritually dead. Now what does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, death is really a, a separation. Some people think death is a, is a ceasing to exist, but that's not the case. When, when we die... We don't cease to exist. Our body and our soul are separated from one another. And so to be spiritually dead means that we are in a, a state of spiritual separation from God. You see, God is, is life. God is the source of all, all that is good, all spiritual life. And so apart from God, because of our sin, and, and that creates a separation between us, we have no life within us. We are separated from the source of life. Sin kind of drives this wedge in between us and God separating us from all that, is, all that is good and all that brings life. And this has consequences. You know, it makes us unable to please, to know, or to even understand God. You know, in our sin, we can't understand God. If you talk to an unbeliever and they're not understanding the things of God, it's, it's not because 
You're not explaining the message good enough. It's because the natural man cannot understand the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. The natural person, that is the person still in sin, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now think on that for a second. In our natural self, not only do we not accept the things of God, but we are unable to accept them. See, we're not just merely bad people needing to be made good by God. We are dead people needing to be made alive by God. And so we are slaves to sin. We are dead in sin. But unfortunately, it gets even worse. There is a a consequence to all of this. There is a a punishment for sin. Right now, we are spiritually dead, but there is an eternal death that the Bible talks about, an eternal separation from the grace of God that is coming for all who remain in their sin. The Bible clearly teaches that whoever does not repent and turn to Christ, there will be a place of eternal conscious torment for the wicked. And sometimes I think us, other people, we don't actually understand how much suffering there is going to be in hell. You know, people write songs. I think it was Aaron who told me, you know, hell ain't such a bad place to be. Or the line from Oscar Wilde, I don't want to go to heaven. None of my friends are there. Now, I don't know exactly what hell will be like, but what I do know is that it will be the most terrible experience that a human being could ever experience, and it is all for eternity. It is for all of eternity. Here's how the Bible describes it. Revelation 21 verse 8, a lake that burns with sulfur and fire. Matthew 25 46, a place of eternal punishment. Revelation 20 verse 10, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 14 verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Matthew 13, verse 50, a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell ain't such a bad place to be. It's the worst place to be. And because of our sin, it's the place where we all rightfully deserve to be, burning in hell for all of eternity because of who we are. But here, the words of the angel that first Christmas morning. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who releases us from the bondage of sin and shame. He breaks the the shackles of slavery that we have, setting us free. Our Savior who, who takes our dead and lifeless souls and He makes them alive, uniting us once again to our God, our Savior who came and who bore the wrath of God, sparing all who believe from the eternal burning flames of the lake of fire. This is why the gospel is called good news. This is why we rejoice because through Jesus we have been saved from all of this if we will turn to Him 
in repentance and faith. Now, if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, all of these things I talked about, all of these consequences of sin, they're still upon you. They're still upon you. And some people might say, don't try and scare people into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I don't want you to burn in hell for all of eternity. You've rebelled against God, and the only way that you can be saved from that is if you turn to Christ. You are still a slave to sin. You are still dead in your sin. You are still condemned to the eternal fires for your rebellion, but it doesn't have to be that way. God offers you a way out. He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so don't wait any longer. Children, if you have not turned to Christ as your Lord and Savior, turn to him today. You don't know when your last day is going to be. And so come to Christ and he will welcome you with open arms. And as Christians, this gives us such a great reason to rejoice. That God is our Savior. That He has saved us from all of this. If this is all we talked about this morning, we would have enough reason to rejoice. And so if you're a Christian and you're struggling with joy like I talked about at the beginning of the sermon, you feel like your life is just dull. It's, it's full of, of sadness and, and, and sorrow all of the time. There is no joy for you in the Lord. Start here. Start meditating on all that God has saved you from. But there is even more. Quickly, we'll look at the second reason that we can rejoice in the Lord, and that is because God looks upon the humble, looks upon the humble, and He makes them blessed. Look at verse 48 and 49. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Oh, sorry, that's 48. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week when we were looking at the character of Mary, that God always looks favorably on the low and the humble. In James 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And God always uses the, the lowly and the humble to accomplish his plans. He takes the, the foolish of the world to shame the wise. He takes the, the weak things of the world to shame the mighty things. And Mary, she gives praise to God for this. You know, she is part of the weak of the world, this young virgin from Galilee, and God looked on her in favor because of her, her humility, and he blessed her. And now this is, this is key to the Christian walk. This is key to the Christian walk. If you are not humble, you cannot expect to grow as a Christian or see any lasting fruit in your life. Remember James 4? God opposes the proud. So if you are proud, God is actually in opposition to you and you are in opposition to Him. And I'll give you some news. You're not going to win that fight. You're not going to win the fight of opposition against God. And you're going to see the effects of your pride in your relationships with others and with God. Augustine 
said it well. He said, for those who would learn God's ways, which we all want to do, humility is the first thing. Humility is the second thing, and humility is the third. See, there is no sanctification in the Christian life apart from humility. And what we are to do as Christians is we are to look to Christ to see our example of humility. That's Paul's argument in Philippians 2. There's there's disunity within the church. There's problems that are going on. And he says, okay, have this attitude among you. And then he talks about Christ. He says, have the mind of Christ in humility, counting others as more significant than ourselves. Then he goes on to say, Christ took on the form of a man. This is how Christ humbled himself. He took on the form of a man. It's something that we think of more around this time of Christmas, the incarnation. The fact that Jesus who is the God and creator of the universe, took on the form of a a little baby child. Now, if you think of babies, they are in just such a a helpless state. I mean, they can't feed themselves. They can't move themselves. They can't communicate besides crying and whining. They, They need you to change their diapers. They're in this complete state of utter reliance And yet on that Christmas morning, the God of the universe takes on this this state. Have you ever thought of that? That God comes in the form of a little baby child. And you can imagine what the angels might have been thinking. Like, what is is going on here? We saw this, this God create the heavens and the earth, and now he takes on the form of a man. And even further than that, not only did Christ take on the form of a human, but he took on the form of a servant. He he came as a man, but he wasn't exalted above other men sitting on thrones, but he was one who came to serve others. He said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came and he, he washed the feet of his disciples who he knew would abandon him in the coming days. And so, what does this mean for us? Well, it means if you want to grow in humility, you need to look to Christ's example and you need to follow it. You need to take on the form of a servant. And not just in action. You know, we can, let's say in your relationship with your wife and you're not being humble, you go and you, you serve her, but you're doing it with this entitled attitude. Well, that's not taking on the form of a true servant. That's just called hypocrisy. What you need to do is have your heart and your actions take on this form of, I am not worthy, and I am called to lay down my desires. I'm called to elevate the desires of others and serve them. And so think to yourself, in what relationships have you not been humble? Maybe you've been domineering rather than serving. In what relationships have you been insisting on your own way rather than counting others as more significant than yourself? In what ways have you been doing all of what you're doing out of selfish ambition and conceit? Because the problem is not only will your relationships suffer, but you will not be blessed. You will not be blessed. Look at the the end of 48. For behold, now all generations will call me blessed. And then verse 49, 
for he has done great things for me. Why can you rejoice this morning? Because God blesses the humble estate of his servants. When we as Christians seek out this humble estate, it's not left unnoticed by God. It's not left unnoticed by God. God blesses you. And he offers you this this blessing of, of peace in the times of trial and bitterness and conflict. He offers you the living water of life that never dries or vanishes. He offers you intimate, sweet communion with him. He offers you victory over that sin that so easily entangles you. He offers you rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he offers you joy. He says, I have told you these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. God blesses the humble estates of his servants. And all of this is offered to us as Christians if we would humble ourselves before the Lord and we can rejoice in that. And we start off the sermon talking about what people want most in life. And most people want happiness and joy. And I don't think Christians are much different. I know I'm not much different. We are different, though, in how we get there. We're different in how we get there. The world looks to things or it looks to the self for joy. You know, if I could get a, a bigger house, then I can be joyful. You know, if I'm just free to live my life the way that I want to live my life without anyone interfering, then I can be joyful. If I can just move on from the past, improve the fi- future, fix myself, then I will be joyful. But these are all just band-aids. They're band-aids to the problem. They only temporarily bring joy. True joy, eternal joy, comes not when we look to things, not when we look to ourselves, but when we look to Christ. When we look to Christ. As the psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Perhaps you've heard of the missionary David Brainerd. David Brainerd. He was a missionary to the Delaware tribes of New Jersey in the early 18th century, and he was a a man of pain and suffering. If you read through his diaries, uh, you'll see he was orphaned at the age of 14. In college, he suffered with tuberculosis, where back then it was not treatable in any way. And at the young age of 29, he was called home to be with the Lord. And so in his writings, he, he understandably writes a lot about his pain and his suffering. Yet the most striking thing is that he writes even more about his joy and his happiness in the Lord. That no matter his suffering and trials, joy was his because he was God's. And God had already given him far more than he could imagine and far more than he deserved. You know, he once said, which this is what I pray for all of us, if you hope for happiness in the world... Hope for it from God. Hope for it from God. May we all look to Christ as the source of our everlasting joy. Let's pray.